Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers podcast, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 13. Be sure if you missed last broadcast, we had an excellent review by Mark in the 13th chapter. We're going to be starting on verse 38 in this lesson right here, but you do want to make sure you hear that last program, part 24. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come visit your word and visit the uh, the teaching that you have given us through Jesus and through uh, the many writers of the, the Bible. We thank you for that, and we thank you for Mark and uh, his faithfulness, and bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, Tom and everyone. It's good to be back with you. We have been looking at the book of Acts, and we have been seeing uh, in this book by Luke the systematic fulfillment of many, many, many prophecies given to national Israel or Old Testament Israel uh, by the prophets throughout their history, from Moses all the way up to the end of Zechariah, Malachi, and so on. Uh, we're seeing more and more. The first part of the book focused on the 12 apostles in Jerusalem, and Paul is slowly brought into the picture, and he has just recently kind of taken over the leadership role of his party with Barnabas after going through the island of Cyprus and hitting both major cities there. They have crossed north to the south coast of Turkey, Asia Minor, as it was then called, and they have gone inland, and they have arrived at Antioch of Pisidia. And the 13th chapter of Acts contains the address that Paul made there in the synagogue. And it's a very, it's succinct, and yet it probably gives us the greatest picture of what Paul said when he was allowed to speak in a a synagogue. The word synagogue to, to us today means a, a building where Orthodox or Reform or Conservative Jews would gather, perhaps, but it didn't really convey that meaning in the first century. Uh, for one thing, there are no synagogue buildings, certainly outside of Palestine, uh, that date before the third century AD. There might be one or two that 
some people say, or in the second century. But a synagogue was definitely not a building. It was just, it, the word meant assembly. So it was the, the people of God, Israel, assembling to read the scriptures. And we pointed out that books were so expensive in the ancient world that only the wealthiest people could afford to own uh, any kind of a book. But to have a complete set of all of the Hebrew scriptures and the apocryphal books that were in wide circulation this time would have been uh, unheard of. And so the only way that people that wanted to learn about the God of Israel could have access to these scriptures would be to gather with the people of God on the Sabbath day where they would read a section from the law uh, or the books of Moses and then they would read a section from the prophets, the, the later books of the Hebrew scriptures, and then they would discuss them and so on. But it was, it was more like a family gathering than an, an institutional meeting, at least at this time. So Paul has met with these people, and the interesting thing is also that we talked about last week is that the these synagogues that were out in the Greek world, or, well, really the Roman world, Rome lacked a lot of originality. They copied most of their culture from the Greek culture. In fact, they applied the Greek culture much better than the Greeks did. But Greek was the universal language spoken, and, and so the Judean people who lived out in the Roman-slash-Greek world spoke Greek, and they were called the Hellenistic Judeans, and, and they, when they gathered uh, for their Saturday gatherings, they would read and, and uh, discuss in the Greek language using the Septuagint, the Greek scripture that was done in Alexandria, uh, Egypt. I can't remember if Alexander the Great commissioned that or if it was done after his death, but uh, anyway, it was a Greek uh, Bible uh, for the uh, Judean people, uh, all the remnant of Israel. Because of these circumstances, in all of these cities, these gatherings of Judeans also attracted people of other nations living in the city who spoke Greek, who were intrigued, or curious, or impressed, or all of the above, by the God of Israel. When you look at the gods of Greece, which the Romans adopted, I mean, they're a pretty foul set of gods and uh, goddesses and so on. Uh, the, the God of Israel stands head and shoulders. Well, that's, that's a gross understatement. But there was just no comparison. And the Judean people had, had known that in their last days as a nation that the other nations would be drawn to their God. There were numerous prophecies, particularly in the book of Isaiah, that predicted this. And this is what we find, beginning here at Antioch Pisidia and continuing on everywhere that Paul went. They had the huge numbers of these non-Judean people who were listening to the scriptures being read. And they were known as God-fearing Gentiles. Cornelius, who we already met in, earlier in the book of Acts, was one of these. The, uh, many of them stopped short of circumcision, which would have actually made them an adopted member of the people, uh, the Israelite nation. 
they stopped short of it because circumcision formed a certain deterrent to proselyting. And even if they did, they were still second class compared to those that were descended from Jacob or Israel. As we know, the Judean people kept all these detailed uh, genealogies proving their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. So this is the kind of the audience that we have here. It's, it's a kind of a family gathering. The women are probably segregated from the men, and the Judean men are segregated from the Gentiles or people, uh, not all non-Judean people, but basically is what Gentile means, uh, non-Judean, so or non-Israelite. So this is the audience here, and so we've looked here at uh, Paul's discussion here, and we'll just hit some of the uh, high points here. He, after the reading, he's invited to speak, and Paul stands up and addresses them as men of Israel. Judeans referred to each other as Israelites, not as Judeans. Everyone else referred to them as Judeans, but they were first and foremost uh, proud uh, of their affiliation with Israel, Judah, of course, being one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're a subset of Israel, but it would be common to uh, address each other as Israelites here, as Paul does here. And he talks about God choosing the forefathers of Israel or the patriarchs of Israel and uh, making them a special people and bringing them out of the wilderness. He, he reviews their history uh, all the way down until... Uh, David becomes their king, which was in verse 22. And the the promise made to David, we have all these promises made to Abraham that are repeated over and over, but there were also promises made to David that there would be a descendant of David on the throne of Israel forever. And they hadn't had a king of David's line on the throne since Zedekiah was deposed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So they had been waiting a long time for the line of David to be restored to the kingdom of Israel. So Paul basically says that that has now come to pass through Jesus. And he mentions uh, John the Baptist uh, preparing the people of Israel for this a kingdom which was about to be restored. And in verse 26, uh, Paul says, it's worth repeating, men, brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whoever among you fears God. So he's addressing the, the Israelites there and the Gentiles there at the same time. To you is, this, is the word of this salvation sent. So it's, it's to both of them. And that's key. We'll see that over and over again, that the prophecies that relate to the restoration of the kingdom to Israel and the restoration of David's throne, many of them also say that that is the time in which God will graft the Gentiles or the nations into Israel. He, he mentions then that the residents of Jerusalem, even though they've listened to the prophets being read uh, every week, they have fulfilled uh, them in condemning him and uh, used Pilate to put him to death. And they fulfilled. He uses the word fulfill like four times in his lesson here. Has been fulfilled. They fulfilled. 
And we're seeing that as a constant pattern in Acts, that all the promises that God had made to Old Testament Israel have and are being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and now in his disciples who have become the spiritual body of Christ. And in verse 32, we're relaying to you the good news, how that the promise that was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled these unto us, their children, the descendants of the of these patriarchs to whom the promises were made, and that the resurrection of Jesus has fulfilled all this. And then he talks about the fulfillment of the second psalm, the uh, anointing of the Christ, and this is the same thing that Peter had uh, quoted on the day of Pentecost, how that uh, David's body uh, rotted in the grave, but yet the Psalms, Psalm 15, Isaiah 55, Psalms 2, uh, talked about the Messiah being of the seed of David, but would never uh, suffer corruption here. David did suffer corruption in verse 36, but he whom God did raise up did not see corruption. So that brings us down to our starting point here in verse 38. And so let us read 38 through 41, please. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. All right. It, it was important to note that major sins or crimes could not be atoned for under the law of Moses at all. If you did something in ignorance or accidentally, then there was a ritual that you would uh, go through, an animal sacrifice, restitution you would pay, and so on. But for something like murder in particular, there was no provision in the law to take away the penalty of that sin. And uh, the law demanded that you would be executed, but, but there was nothing to uh, cover that sin and it was a really bad thing. Of course, the Judean nation had put the Son of God to death. There was no way to atone for that act of uh, idolatry, adultery, and murder. I say adultery because God is supposed to be married to Israel, and so it's like the nation was murdering her own husband, and recall that on Passover, when those events took place, Judeans from all over the world would have come. So it's very likely that every large synagogue would have had at least one member in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' trial. And, and maybe a number of them uh, you know, would have actually been there. But uh, perhaps this is in Paul's mind as he is, uh, as he is saying this. But there was no way to uh, cover these uh, capital offenses, at least, and other deliberate uh, sins under the law of Moses. So 
the scholars uh, try to pick this apart and say that this doesn't agree with what Paul wrote in some of his other letters, but I don't get too uh, upset about any of that. I, I don't think he's saying you can be justified from some things by the uh, law of Moses here. I think what he's trying to say is that there is something that's much better that's come along. And recall we studied a few years ago the book of Daniel and the prophecy of weeks in Daniel chapter 9 where it talked about Messiah being cut off at the 69th week and that the 70th week would bring in an end of Israel's transgression. So to me this is exactly the same thing that Paul is talking about here is this end of Israel's transgression that Daniel was speaking of in the prophecy of weeks and it follows right after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. So it all seems to to fit. But it's it's the changing of the age. It's a monumental time. The, this changing of the age, uh, according to the prophets, in addition to bringing in all these good things, the end of sin, the end of Israel's transgression, it's also going to bring a horrible destruction upon uh, Israel as well. And this is what Paul switches to here in verse 40. He says, beware therefore, in order to enlighten that it is time for all these things to happen, in order the last days of Israel are upon us, you should beware of uh, the warnings in the prophets. And now he's going to quote from Habakkuk 1, uh, verse 5. This quotation follows the Greek uh, Bible much closer than it does the um, Hebrew Aramaic Bible, because that's, of course, what Paul was using and what all these people uh, used as well, uh, where he says, Behold, you despisers and wonder. That word despisers doesn't appear in our Old Testament in some of the translations. Let me just go back there. Habakkuk is written to the southern kingdom of Judah, just before it is utterly destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And so it's preparing them for uh, something horrible that is about to happen. And he, oh, it's kind of an overview of their crimes in the first four verses. And then in the uh, Hebrew it says, Behold you among the nations, as opposed to behold you despisers as the original was translated into Greek. But it's interesting that Habakkuk here is almost quoting from 120 years earlier the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 29, he's, he is writing to all of Israel before the Assyrian nation come in and utterly destroy all of them except for those that are inside the walls of Jerusalem, they're the only ones that survived uh, in the days uh, right after Isaiah wrote. And let's see, oh, we don't have time to read all of Isaiah 29, but if you skip down to uh, verse 13, it says, uh, Wherefore the Lord says, Because this people draws near to me with their mouth and with their lips, they do honor me, but they have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, 
even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent shall be hid. And so that's um, very parallel. He goes on to talk about how their whole world will be turned upside down there in Isaiah 29. And this is what Habakkuk is talking about 110 some odd years later in 1 verse 5. Look, uh, you heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. And then he goes on to talk about the the Babylonians or Chaldeans coming to execute a harsh judgment. But Paul can confidently quote the he kind of conflates these two, Isaiah and Habakkuk, and applies it to the state of the Judeans right then at this time, just a few years before the war with Rome broke out and the nation was utterly and completely destroyed throughout the Roman world. So there's a lot of talk of double fulfillment of Bible prophecy, but usually when you hear that, that's a dispensationalist or a Christian Zionist or something saying, well, yeah, the Bible had that talking about A.D. 70, but it has a dual fulfillment, and it's really going to be fulfilled still here in the future uh, over there in the Middle East and so on. I can't find any biblical justification for doing that, but we do see something similar here where God has pronounced these earlier destructions of the Israelite nation and then is applying them to the final destruction of the Israelite nation in A.D. 70. We do see that a number of times uh, in Acts when these uh, imminent judgments described about 586 B.C. or uh, 650 or whatever it was where the Assyrians destroyed Israel. Uh, These are quoted to describe the state the final state of the Judeans uh, there in the first century A.D. And this marvelous work that you won't believe even if one tells it to you, it involves the complete transformation of Israel that is about to take place where the physical aspect of, of the nation and the temple and so on is going to be utterly destroyed and a spiritual replacement will come or a transfer, a spiritual transformation will occur. Israel is still there, but she is going to be transformed from the harlot bride that she has been for 1,200 years into the spotless, perfect bride that we see in Revelation. And the, all of the nations are going to be added to her as predicted all the way back in the book of Genesis uh, 49, the fullness of the Gentiles predicted by Israel himself as he was dying uh, to his sons and then repeated over and over again through the other Hebrew prophets. So these are the, the wondrous works that would happen in their day, in that generation that the Judean people for the most part are not going to believe even though it is declared to them. That's kind of the end of Paul's discourse. We have spent a lot of time on this, but it's very, very important. And we can envision this being repeated over and over again in every major city that Paul went to that had a synagogue. And a synagogue, again, was a local family of of the Israelite people that could be constituted formally anytime there were ten 
Judean men in a particular uh, city. All right, any thoughts or comments uh, at this time? So they were more like, synagogues were more like uh, family churches, as you say, uh, home churches, like. Yeah, that's what uh, I've just been finding out in this new book I mentioned last week by Mark Nanos. And it makes it makes a whole lot more sense because, I mean, this is what we find the the Judean Christians doing as well, and all the Christians everywhere, they were meeting in homes, and the synagogue wasn't like it was at, in the 300s, just like when Constantine co-opted the Christian churches, he converted them from family groups into institutions of the Roman government. And the synagogues apparently followed suit to keep up with the Joneses or something. All right. But there were uh, large synagogues, as we know, in places like Jerusalem and so forth. So I guess the size of population in a given city would determine that. Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. They're, they know of at least 19 different synagogues in Rome uh, by the time Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, but a lot of scholars think that there were many, many more, that those were just the 19 largest that somehow made it into the official records that have survived. And some speculate that there were, you know, 60 to 100 different of these home groups meeting throughout the city of Rome, reading the Hebrew scriptures. All right, we can read verse 42 down through 40. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All right, thank you. So the the meeting uh, broke up, and apparently more of the God-fearing Gentiles lingered afterwards to uh, to chat with Paul and Barnabas and their party, and really were excited because I mean they were hinting that this it was the time that the Gentiles would be brought in to Israel as uh, Israel himself again, had prophesied back in Genesis 49. So they're very excited. They want to learn more about this. And remember, we saw the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a third-class citizen of Israel, even though he would, he would be considered a proselyte, although 
in his condition, he probably couldn't have been circumcised properly. Philip had given him the words of encouragement from Isaiah 56, telling him that he was now a citizen in top standing of Israel, equivalent to uh, the purest of the pure of the Pharisees in Jerusalem, and he went on his way back to Ethiopia rejoicing. We see the same reaction here amongst the God-fearing Greeks, that now all of a sudden they're not going to be second or third class citizens of Israel anymore. They are going to be top tier. They are excited as well, very excited. And so you can see, you know, Paul not being able to get to the hotel room uh, very early here. <laughs> he, he's being kept uh, really late. And so they were so excited, in fact, they drummed up uh, in interest all during the week so that almost the whole city came out to hear the word of God. So, you, you know, God brought the Messiah forth when things were right, when the language uh, the Greek language was universal in the civilized world when the transportation network was advanced to a point that we didn't reclaim until the interstate system uh, you know, was built, the Autobahn in Germany and then the uh, interstates here. I mean, the Romans had uh, highways and sea shipping lanes second to none. You, you can just see the time is right because here the whole Greek civilization has heard about the God of Israel because of the dispersion of the Judean people throughout the Roman world, they had heard of it, and they're interested enough that nearly the whole city turns out to hear the word. So this is, this is just extraordinarily exciting. Verse 45 says, The Judeans saw the crowds and were filled with envy. And now this is exactly what was predicted in Deuteronomy 32, I believe. I wonder if I can flip right to it here. Yeah, I, I did. I flipped right to it here, I think. Um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. This is the Moses' song that God gave him to the Israelites uh, right before he died. And it was a prediction of what would happen to them in their last days. And he says, they have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God or by a non-God. They made me angry with their vanities. I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And uh, he goes on to, to uh, detail their final destruction here in the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32. But he specifically said he would take people that were not a people and provoke his people to jealousy with it. So we see what's happening back here in Acts as a fulfillment of this prophecy given through Moses uh, way back 1,200 years or so before. They are being provoked to jealousy by these non-people all of a sudden being becoming the people of God. It really upset them. So they spoke against everything that Paul said, contradicting and blas blaspheming, which just meant speaking evil of Paul. So Paul and Barnabas uh, just turned back at them and uh, and relay that, 
it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. This, remember, this was Jesus' plan. You go first to Jerusalem and then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul rephrases this in his letter to the Romans. It is salvation is given to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the Judean first and then to the Greek. So it is necessary by the will of God that the word of God be spoken first to Old Testament Israel or physical Israel. But it was predicted that most of them would reject it. Only a righteous remnant would believe. Most of them uh, don't accept it and do not judge themselves worthy of life in the age to come, which is translated everlasting life in the English, but that's not really how it was worded in the Greek. Recall that to the Judeans of the first century, there were only two ages, the age that they were in now, and then the age of the Messiah, which they knew was about to dawn. And so Paul is basically saying the age of the Messiah has dawned, and this those who are in Israel in the new age will have life for the whole age, and that age is never ending. The reign of Messiah never ends, according to the prophet Isaiah. So, since you judge yourselves not worthy of this uh, life for the duration of the age, we turn to the nations, for so has the Lord commanded us. And now he quotes Isaiah 49, which is a very fascinating passage. I have set you for a light for the nations, for your being for salvation unto the end of the earth, which is the final part of Christ's formula back in Acts 1 to the ends of the earth. This is also what Simeon quoted in the temple when the baby Jesus was brought there and dedicated. He held him up uh, and said he was the light for the Gentiles. He was a stone set for the stumbling for the rise and fall of many in Israel. The 49th chapter of Isaiah is talking about Israel, the nation of Israel as a person, and how they had, this person of Israel had been God's servant, his uh, arrow, a weapon of God, a, a beautiful uh, servant of God. And ultimately, though, in verse 5, it switches that the main purpose of the nation of Israel was to bring forth his servant, not named, but we know this, of course, is Jesus, who will bring back Jacob, in order to regather Israel. Although Israel is not gathered, yet I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has been my strength. So this would be describing uh, the work of Jesus, the ultimate purpose of the nation of Israel, to bring forth Messiah, who will regather Israel. Not in his person, but verse 6 continues and says, um, he said, it's a light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give you for a light to the Gentiles that you may be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. So right here, it's very clear that the time of the regathering and the restoration of Israel would be the time in which the light 
would be sent to the Gentiles and salvation would be sent to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. And we see this repeat in the other prophets. But Paul here is quoting this. Simeon quoted it uh, at Jesus' birth and so on. So it's a very, very important passage. And, and the 49th chapter of Isaiah goes on to talk about uh, God choosing Israel to be his covenant people. And this, of course, is exactly what Paul is talking about to the audience there of the synagogue is the ones that were chosen for eternal life and the ones that were chosen or have chosen themselves out of it, unfortunately. And the the 49th goes on to talk about making my mountains away and my highways being lifted up and in gathering from the four corners of the earth. Sing, O heaven, sing, O earth, break forth into singing, O mountains. The Lord has comforted his people. So it's talking about the sin of Israel, but that God is not going to forsake Israel. Israel is, the old Israel is faithless, but God is faithful to faithless Israel. And it's easy for us to see how that uh, the 49th chapter of Isaiah is speaking of this end times transformation of Israel that involves a horrible judgment and an incredible transformation. It would have been virtually impossible to figure out that that's what was being talked about ahead of time. But they'd heard it read over and over again, and now Paul is explaining to them what this passage that they knew so well actually meant. And it was good news, very good news for the Gentiles, very bad news for the national Judeans who were rejecting and fighting against the message that the Messiah had come and reestablished the throne of David. And they'd been threatened with this imminent uh, destruction the week before. But anyway, the Gentiles heard all of this uh, and were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And many... As many as were ordained to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spread abroad throughout the region. So this will be the pattern that Paul repeats. He goes to a synagogue which has attracted a large number of God-fearing Gentiles. A tiny percentage of the Judeans believe the gospel, but a huge number of the God-fearing Gentiles believe and you have a new family of God formed within the greater sphere of the uh, synagogue, the old family of God, and they're going to be coexisting here easily or uneasily at times in these various cities uh, for the next 10, 15 years. I mean, we're getting close to the end here. And, uh, well, I lost my train of thought there. I'm sorry. But anyway, they're they're going to... uh, coexist, which is going to help us understand a lot of Paul's letters, which are written to Christians who are still meeting within this bigger family sphere of the uh, synagogue. And Paul is hoping that the believers are not going to uh, drive away any of the non-believing Judeans, but continue to persuade them so that a few more of them might be saved before it is everlastingly too late. Paul also has this pattern that once he has got a number of believers in a major city, 
he can move on to another major city because he is training the people how to publish the good news abroad throughout all the region. So again, we see a lot of precedents here, starting here with Paul at Antioch in Pisidia. And we just have three more verses. Uh, we can go ahead and read those. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Great, thank you. This is a pattern that we will see repeated over and over again, the Judeans stirring up the Roman society to the best of their ability. I believe this is pictured in the book of Revelation as the harlot riding the beast. And I know that, you know, there's, I don't know how many books would you guess, 5,000 books <laughs> trying to apply that uh, imagery to present-day events going back hundreds of years, most of which would be ludicrous to us now. Uh, well, all of them would be ludicrous, but most of them have proven to be false by the passage of time. But uh, this is exactly what they are trying to do. Of course, they achieve their greatest success uh, when Nero is emperor, when Nero's wife becomes a full proselyte to the Judean religion and persuades Nero to put the whole power of Rome at the disposal of these uh, uh, Judean opponents of the gospel. But here they stir up enough, they are able to raise persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they throw them out of their borders, probably thinking that all the trouble will go away and that this crazy idea will leave with Paul and Barnabas and their party. But, of course, it did not because these, these people knew enough of the scriptures that they were able to just pick up right where uh, Paul and Barnabas left. And again, there's no mention that the synagogues had to be very pluralistic outside of Palestine. Uh, I, as one of you already mentioned, in Jerusalem, for instance, you would have multiple synagogues. You would have Greek-speaking, Aramaic-speaking, the school of Shimei, the school of Hillel, you would have all of these factions or denominations and so on. But out in the Greek world, all of these various factions and groups would all meet together to uh, share the one set of scriptures that were available to them. And so the new believers in Christ, did, I don't believe at this point, viewed themselves as something separate and a part of the synagogue. They just viewed themselves as the enlightened amongst the synagogue, and they would have continued to assemble with them to continue to learn of the scriptures. And, of course, they're thinking, and then, you know, then they would start, they would meet together as a subset of the synagogue the next day or the next night to discuss probably how to apply what they heard read the day before to the New Age and the Kingdom of God and the Messiah and so on. So it would have been a truly exciting time for all these people, even though they would have been sad that Paul and Barnabas had been expelled so quickly. Now notice that 
Paul and Barnabas uh, shake the dust off their feet, Christ had commanded uh, the disciples in Galilee to do this if a town or city rejected them and their message. And this was a, and I believe the Jehovah's Witnesses do this still today. If you uh, reject them out of hand at the door and send them away, you'll see them shake their feet uh, out at the end of your walk when they get to the sidewalk or something. But this was actually a sign of impending a judgment that even the dust of that place would be utterly destroyed and so you didn't want any of it clinging to your shoes uh, after you uh, left there <laughs> because the whole place was going to be uh, utterly destroyed. In this place, it's not necessarily talking about the place of Antioch of Pisidia, but rather the people there who were persecuting the message of Jesus Christ. And then they went on to the next major city, Iconium. Claudius Iconium was the uh, full name of the city, which had received a special blessing from the Emperor Claudius and a new name just a few years before this. The disciples they left behind, though, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So as Peter had done at Pentecost, they they believed, were baptized, and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They became the spiritual temple of God, and God dwelt in them, the Father and the Son. And uh, it was a joyous thing for all of them. So they, they weren't too dismayed about Paul and Barnabas leaving. They had enough uh, information to be excited and to continue their work. All right, any any parting shots here on Acts 13? That was excellent, Mark. Chuck or anyone else would like to make a comment here? The scriptures are, are a little confusing in that they talk about the people in these synagogues in, in a different way because of the translations. When Paul addressed them, he started out calling them men of Israel in verse 16. But then later on, when they were referring to them negatively uh, as kicking uh, Paul out of the chapel, in verse 43, they were referred to as the congregation. But then other places they're referred to as Jews. And it looks like uh, when the connotation was supposed to be negative, the scripture writers used the term Jew. And when it was sort of a positive connotation, they called them men of Israel or the congregation and were more generous with them. And this looks like this had something to do with whoever wrote the King James Version and the other versions of the Bible and the use of this term Jew. In these synagogues, Mark, did they conduct animal sacrifices there? No, uh, no, these, absolutely uh, not. Yeah. Were these Babylonian Talmudic Jews, or what kind of Israelitism did they teach in these synagogues that they would listen to Paul and, and the Barnabas and these people? Well, that's the that's exactly the point, is that it was a very pluralistic group. It was all of them who considered themselves Judean, no matter what form of it that they practiced or claimed to practice. And this is also why they would allow a stranger who was a Judean visiting in their midst to speak, because they had a wide range of views right there in this gathering. They were united strictly by their respect for the scriptures 
of Israel and the Bible and the God of Israel revealed in those scriptures. And so anyone who wanted to learn about the uh, scriptures of Israel, the history of Israel, and, and the God of Israel would assemble in this uh, group. That, that one verse that you mentioned, verse 16, you see, just as you, uh, no, it wasn't the right verse, but the word is synagogue, but the King James translators translated it as congregation in that one instance. They translate it as synagogue when they can think of it as a building, but when, they, when you have to translate it as people, well, then they change it and say congregation, but it's the exact same word. It wasn't a building. It was all of the assembly of Israel in that place, the assembly of those who wanted to hear the scriptures read. So that's, that kind of explains a lot of things to me, is understanding that these synagogues were all different types that had come together. It would be, it would be like if you were in outer Mongolia, and, and there, were, there was uh, two Catholics, uh, two Southern Baptists, a Methodist, Episcopalian, Anglican, Church of Christ, uh, you know, one of each in the city. And uh, you would have all these different people who would come together to read the Bible together and maybe sing a few songs and things like that. They would lay aside their differences because they would find themselves as strangers in a strange land surrounded by a totally foreign religion, and they would be brought together and they would be excited in that setting to set aside their differences, which if they were back in the home country, they would never dream of meeting together. But because of their circumstances, they would love the opportunity to meet together and to have access to their scriptures, which they left you know, behind years before or even generations before, this would be the only way for people of remotely like mine, uh, you know, to get together and to uh, celebrate their common interest in the scriptures of Israel. Mark, this would be uh, considerably different than the modern situation we have today. I would warrant that if you pick a synagogue there in Texas or in New Mexico and uh, go there and ask to discuss a few things with them about Christianity that you would get not get an audience. In fact, we have friends who have been standing in front of synagogues for literally years, and they get nothing but condemnation. They never, they never make a friend while they're there. So you pointed out a marked difference between the market that Paul had to reach in basically talking to whoever might be sort of a faith-based gathering and the, the market you would have if you decided to go to synagogues as your market today. And uh, we have a little bit of the same situation when we go to Christian Zionist churches and try to get them to listen to us. We sort of get the same treatment that we would get if we went down to the synagogue on the corner, I think. Well, I certainly agree if you're out on the sidewalk. We have, you know, we have a few that we know, uh, like Tom... <laughs> And I know of a family in Dallas that are enlightened on these matters, but still attend a large dispensational Zionist uh, church. And they try to be an influence there, even though they're a tiny minority of this large uh, church. And, I, you know, I don't know. But certainly standing on the street corner 
or walking in and asking to say a word to the congregation, uh, I can't expect that you would gain where. And again, I, I don't see any similarity between the synagogues of the present day and the synagogues of the first century, except the same word is used in the English language, just like the word Jew. They're totally different then and now, and, and I don't see any similarities really to speak of. Thank you. That's a very good Mark point. It. Appreciate that. Another question here. When did the temple sacrifices stop? Was it hundreds of years, or was that? Uh, do you have a timeline on that? Or oh yeah, we know exactly because Josephus has it recorded for us <laughs> down to the minute almost in his writings because he was a priest serving in the temple in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin sent him up to Galilee to try to get things under control up there uh, during the Roman War. And so, anyway, the, no, the, A.D. 70 is when the uh, temple was profaned by the zealots and uh, the sacrifices ceased, and uh, they're the ones that actually did it. The Romans came in and destroyed the city, but, I mean, the city was so full of dead, stinking corpses that the Romans under Titus probably did everyone a great favor by burning the city because there's no telling what kind of foulness and plagues. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable when you read Josephus' account of how the temple ended, the temple sacrifices ceased, and it was just beyond comprehension. They've been trying to make a movie about it for uh, 30 or 40 years, but it wouldn't be too politically correct. It wouldn't be well-received by the uh, Jewish community in America. It wouldn't be received well by our dispensational friends, uh, certainly not by the Christian Zionists in the country you know at all. <laughs> when, you, when you see what happened there in fulfillment of the Song of Moses and all these other prophecies, or right here, Habakkuk, be, beware you despisers. It was horrible. I mean, it was just, just brutal beyond imagination. So that's when it well, ended. But this was written before 70 A.D., the book yes. of Acts, was it not? Yes. So, yes. so there must have been some that were stopping, or these smaller synagogue uh, congregations would not have had the facilities to do sacrifices? or. Oh, no, no. They, that, and I, I failed to answer that, Chuck. The only sacrifices were offered at the temple in Jerusalem. The synagogue oh, okay. was not a copy of the temple. Now, some synagogues today call themselves temple. I think my Jewish friend that I went to high school with, he talked about going to temple every Saturday instead of going to synagogue. But they were never the same. The synagogue was just a place to gather to hear the scriptures read. They did not have priests. They did not have Levites. They did not have altars. They, they had a little cabinet where they kept the scrolls because that was their that was the whole center of, of why they came together when they later built buildings they called it an ark where they kept the scrolls and so on but no they never they never 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 duplicated the rituals that were at the Jerusalem temple it was very specific that those were only done in one place so the religion of Old Testament Israel ended in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple just as God had predicted. Now, the synagogue communities 
eventually reformed after the war. I mean, it, you know, they would have been about as popular as Arabs are in America today, you know, for years following the, the war. But some of them were resourceful and survived as their communities were being purged and, and uh, destroyed throughout the Roman world. And they did, they reconstituted themselves as synagogues. And, of course, the Pharisees in particular who escaped the destruction began building the new religion of rabbinic Judaism, which has survived uh, in multiple forms down to this day. But it was a new religion that had to be created after the destruction of the temple, which ended the religion that Moses gave at Mount Sinai, which involved animal sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. Great. Thank you. That was very enlightening. appreciate the study today. Look forward to continuing on next week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.